Hello, everyone. You are listening to Diverse Roots, a podcast all about the unique career journeys in science and medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Cassie Briggs, and in each episode, I'm joined by a successful professional who shares their career journey, lessons learned, and advice for aspiring scientists like yourself. So whether you're on your commute, working out, or doing some chores, prepare to be inspired. Hillary Eisen is the Conservation Policy Director at Winter Wildlands Alliance, a nonprofit organization dedicated to inspiring and empowering people to protect America's wild snowscapes. She works with grassroots partners, agency staff, and elected officials on national forest winter travel management, forest planning, and other policy issues. Hillary started her career in public lands in the backcountry maintaining forest service trails, and educating the public about wilderness stewardship as a wilderness ranger while spending winters working on wildlife research projects. She also earned a BA in conservation biology from Middlebury College and an MS in wildlife biology from the University of Montana along the way. If you have an adventurous spirit and love spending time in the great outdoors, you will be captivated by Hillary's career journey story. And here are a few other inspiring topics from today's episode. How creating your own job description might lead to an exciting opportunity, when to include your hobbies on a resume, and which conservation jobs involve more time in the office than time outdoors. And if you're looking for a way to visit top vacation destinations like Lake Tahoe or Yellowstone and get paid for it, this is the episode for you. Let's jump in. Hello, Hillary. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, how's it going? It's great. I'm so excited to have you on. You are my first policy heavy person. So I think it'll be a really exciting discussion that opens the eyes of our listeners to careers in science that also bleed into some of the politics and societal issues. So excited to jump in. But before we do, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, anything you want to share about your professional life and anything about your personal life? Sure. Um, yeah. So my name's Hillary Eisen. I'm the policy director with Winter Wildlands Alliance, which is a national nonprofit that inspires and empowers people to protect America's wild snowscapes. Uh, we work on public land conservation advocacy with a winter twist and uh, represent skiers, snowshoers, anyone who likes to be outside in the winter or just loves winter landscapes um, in the public land sphere. So I tell people I work everywhere where there's public land and snow, uh, which is a pretty big piece of the country uh, from New England to Alaska down to California. I personally live in Bozeman, Montana. Um, I grew up in Montana, went out east for school and then uh, missed big open spaces and sagebrush and um, came back, came back west, lived in Wyoming for a little bit and then came ended up back in Montana. Maybe not surprising, given the organization I work for, spend a lot of time in the outdoors uh, in all seasons, not just in winter, uh, but really enjoy backcountry skiing and ice climbing in the wintertime, as well as Nordic skiing and um, just being outside. And then in the summer, spend a lot of time hiking and backpacking and rock climbing and usually do those things with my dog in tow and um, often with my husband or, or other friends. But 
bit about me. Fantastic. Sounds like there's a lot of overlap between what you like to do for work and what you like to do for fun in your life. So uh, that's wonderful. I always like to start this podcast discussion out with going back in time and thinking about your first career ambition. So what's the very first thing you remember ever wanting to be when you grew up? Um, I mean, I think the very first thing was a princess, but um, that, you know, that was pretty early on. And then I was actually thinking about this question, and I'm not sure if I wanted to be a senator or a forensic pathologist first. As a little kid, those were the two things I was kind of interested in, like politics or science. I don't know. Um, from like a really young age, uh, like I remember having my dad like bring home cow eyeballs for me to dissect and like things like that. Uh, But at the same time, like volunteering on political campaigns from like as long as I could remember um, interning with uh, one of Montana's senators for a really long time and being super interested in politics. So I'm not sure which of those came first, but um, the forensic pathologist track at least uh, led me towards like what I studied in, in school and things like that, you know, more of a, a science bend um, as I got older. Wow. You might be one of the few guests that we've had that actually ended up in a career that's very similar to their initial interest. Maybe not the princess part, but the <laughs> politics side and the science side. So I'm excited to dive deeper into that journey. And so Obviously, your career ambitions sort of evolved over time. And so maybe starting in middle high school, moving forward, what were those major milestones for you? Yeah, um, I think a really important um, experience in my life that led me away from like lab science or politics or anything and, and into more of like public land conservation work Um so when I was a sophomore in high school, we had an all-school presentation by the Student Conservation Association talking about summer programs. And I might have been the only kid in the audience who was like, oh, my gosh, I want to do that. Like, I, at, until that moment, it never occurred to me that, like, spending your summer outside, you know, working on public land was even an option. And so I applied for that program um, and then spent the summer after my junior year, um, working on a trail crew in Vermont and living in a tent for the whole summer. And that was just so eye-opening for me as like, this is a possibility of what I could do with my life. The crew leader lived out of her truck. It was, I was like, this is my hero. (laughs) Like, forget med school, forget anything like that. I want to, I want to dig trails and and live out of my truck when I get a truck. (laughs) (laughs) So that was definitely an important moment for me in high school. Um, I I still had my other interests. Um, I actually spent the following summer as a Senate intern in Washington, D.C. Well, at the time was important and in retrospect was also a pretty helpful moment in my career path or life path, kind of giving me some insight into how uh, Congress works and and what happens with government in D.C. It also was an important moment for me in terms of figuring out, like, I don't want to be on Capitol Hill. I want to be on, like, real hills. <laughs> um, and, and so then um, when I got to college, I, uh, I really threw myself into, like, the outdoor club and, you know, making friends with people who were climbers and hikers and pursued, you know, studied science, was 
preliminarily interested in pre-med and then very quickly changed to conservation biology. Um, like, I don't want to be in the lab and I really don't want to take organic chemistry, uh, but I do want to take ecology classes and, you know, collect plants and learn to identify birds and, you know, that kind of science um, versus like pipettes and having to be super precise and sterile. So let me ask before you continue, where did the pre-med interest when you entered college come from? Because it doesn't sound like it existed in what you shared from your high school experience. Well, I think it was that lingering forensic pathologist piece, um, which eventually actually kind of evolved a bit to like, well, maybe I want to work. I don't, I think when I was like picking which college to go to, I narrowed it down based on which schools had neuroscience programs. Cause I was like, maybe I'll be a brain surgeon, which like, I don't know why I, I chose that. I think it was like brain surgeon sounds smart. I think I'm pretty smart. Um, and then I quickly realized like I wasn't that smart. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, from a long time, um, you know, ever since I was a little kid wanted to be a doctor of some sort. And that was partially like, I think growing up and being a science minded kid, you're a doctor. Like Mm. I, other types of science weren't really on my radar. Um, when I was younger, it was kind of, you know, if you're interested in science, you're a doctor. If you're interested in non-science, maybe you're a lawyer or a teacher, um, unless you're a science teacher. (laughs) So I think that was just kind of always had been like, you know, from elementary school, just this like, oh, of course I'll go into this because I care about science. You know, I'm interested in science and therefore I go to medical school and like what kind of, you know, doctor I end up, I don't really know, but like, here's some ideas. And so, and I think too, when you're applying to college, there's just so many things to be thinking about and so many options. Like, location, campus culture, major, you know, what kind of majors are available. And so I just had to like focus on something somewhat arbitrary. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so that was where the pre-med came. But then once I actually got to, you know, really thinking about what that actually meant um, and like taking those classes, that's when, and then that combined with the experiences I was having in terms of like discovering how much I wanted to be outside and care, you know, kind of understanding conservation a bit more and quite honestly wanting to take easier classes <laughs> led me uh, to more the conservation biology versus the pre-med side of science. I didn't want to like give up on science by any means. And I mean, how fortunate it was to have that presentation back in high school, because I can only imagine how it might have felt as you enter college, taking some of those classes and realizing, oh, shoot, I don't want to be in pre-med and feeling like you had no other options. At least you had that exposure to know, well, wait, there's this other side of science that I could pursue. And so take us take us beyond graduation. What was next for you after you graduated college? So then I pursued my dreams of living in a truck and working on trail crews for the Forest Service. I didn't have a truck, actually. I I had a a Subaru, but I I worked for the Forest Service. I started working for the Forest Service during college um, as a summer job. I'd come back to Montana um, in the summers and and work for the Forest Service on the summer trail crew, building trails on different national forests across Montana. And so when I graduated from college, that was my plan. I was like, my career goal is to be a permanent seasonal trails boss with the Forest Service. So I moved to Red Lodge, Montana, and spent the summer building trails in the Absorca Beartooth Wilderness, which is one of my favorite places in the world. Um, I did the next summer, I worked in the same, the same forest, but 
as a wilderness ranger, which is even better because you don't, you're doing less trail building and more just like hiking around um, and keeping an eye on the wilderness. So, um, so that was, you know, I, I was on track to do that. But I also, uh, when I was in college, I had done a study abroad program in Namibia that was um, a field course-based program. We were working on a, for a black rhino conservation organization. And so I'd gotten my first taste of like, what does it look like to be a wildlife biologist or to study wildlife in some way? And since you don't do trail crew in the wintertime, but you have to do something, um, I my first plan had been to be a ski bum. And then I decided maybe I'd just throw my resume out to a few totally random people that I had no business sending my resume to, to see like what kind of jobs were available in wildlife. And I, and that first winter after college, I, I, in that resume blitz, one of the people I sent my, my resume to was the head of the Wyoming wolf introduction program. So this was back when uh, gray wolves had fairly recently been reintroduced to Yellowstone, um, within 10 years or so, and they were spreading. At, well, it may have been more than 10 years, but the gray wolf population in the Northern Rockies was still um, listed as endangered. Um, there was still a lot of research going on understanding how that population was growing and, and what the ecological effects of that were. And so I sent my resume to the guy who ran the entire gray wolf program uh, for Fish and Wildlife Service in the state of Wyoming. And he very kindly wrote me back and was like, yeah, you don't have any skills, but you clearly have enthusiasm and you have, well, you do have outdoor skills and that's really important in this field. And so he was like, if you want to come, you know, live in Jackson, Wyoming for the winter, I, I can't really pay you, but I can provide housing and I'll teach you how to do the job. Um, and so that was amazing. I ended up living in Grand Teton National Park for the winter um, and skiing around tracking wolves. And actually backtracking them to find what they had last eaten and then like collecting information about that and, you know, informed our understanding of, you know, how gray wolves, you know, what, what they're eating in the wintertime in particular and how that affects elk populations and other things. And so then the following winter, I was like, yeah, that whole like wildlife thing is pretty cool. So then I kind of got into this like trail crew in the summer, wildlife field work in the winter pattern for a couple of years. Wow. Like what an adventurous lifestyle and career that sounds like. So what led you to give that all up for what you're doing now? <laughs> I, again, I feel like my, a lot of my career path has been just like stumbling around, like guided by wanting to be outside and like kind of related to science too. And so um, when you, when you're doing seasonal jobs, you every at the kind of cusp of every season, you apply to a lot of different jobs because there's no guarantee that you'll have the old one back. And then especially with wildlife projects, um, they usually are different every year. And so I was living in Cook City, Montana, which is just outside of Yellowstone National Park, but on the other side from Jackson, so the northeast entrance uh, of Yellowstone. And I was studying coyotes in the park and skiing a lot. Uh, Cook City's amazing backcountry ski town, which is one reason that I had actually applied for the coyote job was to uh, have free housing and a chance to ski all the time. Um, these jobs don't really pay anything, but they usually come with housing. Um, and so I was living there, uh, skiing a lot, had in the summer been working in the Beartooth Mountains, which are just all around Cook City. Um, 
and uh, you know, had applied for you know the trail crew jobs, wilderness ranger jobs, had thrown a couple wildlife jobs into the mix, was looking at maybe studying martens in the Sierras. And, and I was like, well, that'd be cool. I could rock climb a lot if I lived down in the Sierras. Um, but I was also really interested in how oil and gas development along the front of the Beartooth Mountains was affecting the wildlife in that area. It was something when I worked on the trail crew, we were building a trail and I, was, I noticed all these uh, pump jacks and oil field development on the Wyoming side. And then just across the state line in Montana, there was nothing. And I was like, well, that's a really interesting natural experiment because the animals, you know, there's pronghorn, there's elk, there's mule deer, grizzly bears, they're moving back and forth through this landscape. Like, I wonder if you could set up some sort of study uh, looking at you know, how this oil and gas development is affecting wildlife in this area. And so that was something I was kind of like, oh, maybe, maybe I do want to go to graduate school, even though I'd swore I was never going to go back to school. Um, and so I was kind of thinking about that. I was applying to a bunch of jobs and I saw this job announcement for a job with the Greater Yellowstone Coalition in Cody, Wyoming, which is along the mountain front, kind of in that area. I was kind of, I was just circling around the Greater Yellowstone, basically, and, um, and the job was basically like protect the Beartooth front from oil and gas development. And I was like, oh, well, I don't really know what that means. I definitely don't have any qualifications, but this ties into this research question that I'm interested in. So maybe I'll apply, like, you know, why not? I'm, I'm submitting a, a ton of different applications for different jobs. You know, the world is my oyster. You know, who knows where I want to go next? And lucky for me, that position happened to be funded through a grant that was specifically for getting new people into the field of conservation. So they were actually looking for someone who didn't have a lot of experience. Um, and I was hired. <laughs> um, I, um, I, I joke, a friend of mine actually, who, somebody who has since become a good friend over the past you know, 15 years, um, was on that hiring committee. And I'm always like, I don't know why you hired me. I like really didn't know anything. But they hired me. And then I had this like real... Um, like, you know, turning point decision in my life. Like, do I move to the Sierras and study pine martens and rock climb a bunch and continue this, like, you know, every few months pick, pick up stakes and move around, like, adventure lifestyle? Or do I move to Cody, Wyoming for, like, at least two years and jump into this office job that's, like, protecting these places that I care about that's you know, very different. And the thing that came down to is actually health insurance. The previous fall had been rock climbing in Yosemite and was way up on a granite face and had this like sudden flash of like, I don't have health insurance. And like, and I continued climbing, but it was like in the back of my head of like, oh man, I don't have health insurance. Um, and so then when I was like thinking about this career opportunity, I was like, well, this job comes with health insurance. Maybe that's something I should consider. And also Cody is one of the uh, best places in the world, I think, to live if you're an ice climber. And as I mentioned earlier, I love ice climbing. So I figured I'd give it a shot. Um, I made a, a deal with myself that if I settled down for a couple years, I could get a dog. So I moved to Cody, I got a dog, and I started learning about conservation policy. Holy cow. I am just amazed. Thank you so much for your transparency and vulnerability and sharing. And I think that is a fair thing that so many young aspiring professionals don't think about is the idea of health insurance. And not only that, like my first thought going through my brain was, okay, great. You have housing covered, but how do you support yourself financially beyond that? Like you still need to eat and things like that. And I hadn't even thought of health insurance, but with your lifestyle, sounds pretty important. 
this was in you know the pre-Obamacare time. So you know, even though I was under 26, you know, I once I graduated from school, I didn't you know I either had to pay my own health insurance or not have it. And you know, when you're in your early 20s, you're like nothing's going to happen to me. Um, and so I decided, and from you know, for the Forest Service, especially at the time, I feel felt like I was making pretty good money in the summers. And so then in the winter, you're making $600 a month seemed more than adequate uh, for, for my lifestyle at the time, uh, being pretty dirtbag. So, uh, and I guess the other, the other piece of the, the big kid job that was appealing was like, oh, I could, I could really scrimp and save and pay off my student loans if I take this job. Um, So that was another, like, how do I become debt free? How do I, you know, maybe have a little bit more stability, but also um, learn new things. Absolutely. So, Let's fast forward a bit and talk about your current position. So how did you discover this position um, and what did that application and hiring process look like? Yeah, so I, um, I worked in Cody at that, that job with Greater Yellowstone Coalition for about three and a half years and then uh, ended up going to graduate school um, in Missoula and then finished grad school, uh, got a degree in wildlife biology and moved to Bozeman um, after that and have been here ever since. And when I moved to Bozeman, I moved here for a part-time temporary job uh, working in conservation still, but it was like very much just a like, not not anything that was going to turn into a, a real job. Um, it was more of like, okay, I finished school. I need something to do, but I don't really want to do a lot right now. I kind of want to take a break. Um, and I wanted to live in Bozeman uh, because of the ice climbing, the backcountry skiing, and also my then boyfriend, now husband, was kind of living in Bozeman, kind of living in Missoula, kind of living in Cook City. We were, but we were kind of circling around Bozeman as where we wanted to be. And so an opportunity came along to, to move here or an excuse maybe <laughs> to move here. And so I did, you know, I, I was here, um, worked that job for about six months. The job ended, winter came along. It's like, great, I'm going to focus on skiing and ice climbing um, and was applying to jobs, you know, at this point knew like conservation policy is what I wanted to do, but didn't, really, you know, have a firm idea of what in that very broad field I was interested in. So I I wanted to take some time to just think about what I really, what my next step should be. Um, And realize that like, when I had worked in conservation for other organizations, often the the members of those organizations or the people that I would see at, you know, public meetings hosted by the Forest Service didn't reflect the people that I was seeing when I was out on public lands. Uh, Like I wasn't seeing my peer group involved in public land conservation at all, even though, you know, my friends and, you know, younger people who were out skiing and ice climbing and rock climbing and backpacking clearly cared a lot about public lands, but they weren't engaged um, as far as I could tell in how those lands are managed. And so I started trying to dream up my dream job of like, how do I get, you know, my people, you know, my peer group involved in public land conservation. And I actually reached out to who was then the CEO of Black Diamond Equipment, the kind of rock climbing and and backcountry ski uh, gear company, reached out to him through a friend of mine and was like, hey, I want to work for you. Here's this job I've dreamed up. And Black Diamond seems like a good place for me to to put that job. Um, And he, he very kindly wrote back and was like, we don't have money to like create a whole new position for this thing that you've dreamed up. But 
if you can figure out how to fund it, you can come work for us. Um, so then I was like, I had kind of a little project and I was trying to think about like, how do I get funding for this? Um, and then I, um, I went to the Winter Wildlands Backcountry Film Festival that just comes through Bozeman every year. I went with some friends just because I was like, oh, cool, ski films. And then a couple days later, I saw this job announcement for Winter Wildlands Alliance doing exactly the thing that I was trying to create. And I was like, I don't need to come up with you know, funding for a job and then convince Black Diamond to like create space for this job. This job exists. Like this, I just, I just have to apply and it'll be mine, obviously. And so, so I submit, I sent in an application. At this point, I was down to like very, very little money in my savings account. So I was not desperate, but like, okay, if I don't get this job, I guess I'll have to go work at like the coffee shop or something. Like I need a job. I had my first interview, you know, with Winter Wildlands and Maybe it was a little bit cocky going into it because I was just like, clearly this is my job. Uh, this job was made for me and and was like, well, I see that you're based in Idaho and I'm never moving there. Like I'm, I'm in Bozeman and this is where I'm going to stay. Um, and also like I'm heading up to Alaska to do this big ski trip. So I'll be like out of communication for the next couple of weeks. And uh, that plus, you know, whatever else um, I had in my application must have made an impression because at about six in the morning, Alaska time, right before I was um, getting ready to leave on this big ski expedition or ski trip through the Wrangell Mountains, the executive director at Winter Wildlands called me and offered me the job. I was like, that's great. <laughs> I'll, you know, I'll be back soon and, and I'll get started. So uh, again, a lot of fortuitous random circumstances that led to it. Wow, that's incredible. Have you since like chatted with them about what it was about you or your credentials that was particularly appealing to them? I don't know if I've ever asked that like specific question. Um, but I think, you know, having hired people at Winter Wildlands myself now, it's like, you know, the combination of being really passionate about what the organization's mission is focused on. So I do a lot of backcountry skiing and winter recreation, and that's what the organization, you know, kind of our guiding light is. Um, I had experience in conservation, having worked in the field for a few years. And then um, I think, you know, having a scientific grounding, uh, both through my undergrad and, and master's degree, a lot of conservation work is science-based. And so being able to read and understand and interpret peer-reviewed studies, being able to communicate science into policy, uh, being able to communicate science into explaining policy to your members, like that's all really important. Um, so I think you know that mixture of things, one, made me interested in the job and two, you know, made me a good fit for the job. Oh, that's awesome. And this is a perfect example. I've heard kind of mixed reviews and I give mixed advice depending on the person in the job about whether or not to include or mention hobbies in your application materials. And I'm curious, did you include that so that they knew you were very involved in snow recreation? Oh yeah. Okay. I, I think it's, I mean, I think it depends on the job, but um, for a job like this, um, and really any job in conservation, because I think with conservation, public land conservation in particular, you know, it's all about public land. And so you have to have a connect, you have to care about that topic and, um, and the, the organization's mission. And different organizations have different missions. But if your hobbies align with the mission, then that demonstrates that you care. And I would say the same is true if you were working on like sustainable or regenerative agriculture 
nonprofit or something and you really liked gardening or um, you know, volunteered in some way with food, like you know, having that connection between what you care about personally and what you do professionally, I think makes for a stronger job candidate for sure. But again, it's it's not required for certain jobs. Like I feel like um, there are other jobs, particularly in, in sciences or in anything. Like uh, my niece is a bank teller, and I don't think that like she's passionate about you know counting change or, or you know, that you know, you could have a job that's t- completely different from what you do in your free time. But I think particularly in the nonprofit field, um, it is really helpful to uh, have a passion for what you're working on. Oh, I completely agree. And the other thing too, is thinking about appealing to a nonprofit who is almost always values driven, mission driven. It's one thing to say in your cover letter or the top of your resume, I'm passionate about conservation. It's another thing to actually demonstrate it with evidence through your activities and or experience, right? Um, so I think backing it up with your true hobbies that you're engaging in matters. And especially when they go Google you, if you have no pictures of you in those hobbies doing those things, they begin to wonder about the validity of what you've shared. And so tell us a little bit more about your role. What kind of job duties and responsibilities do you have? Yeah, so I lead the policy department at Winter Wildlands. As I mentioned earlier, we work everywhere uh, where there's public land and snow, Uh, although I would also add Washington, D.C. into that, even though it rarely is snowy in D.C. anymore. But our mission on the policy side is to protect America's wild snowscapes, and that takes a lot of different shapes in how we do that. We, We work primarily with the Forest Service because the majority of America's wild snowscapes are managed by the Forest Service, at least in terms of where there are potential management threats. You know, there's a lot of a lot of Park Service land that is also snowy, but it's a national park, and for the most part, it's fairly strongly protected. So we we primarily work on Forest Service land management, and I um I end up doing a lot of planning work, which my dad is a Um, a planner, like an architect type planner, school planner. And when he figured out that I actually was a planner as well, he was like, oh, I can relate to what you do now. (laughs) Um, But it's a lot of, um, so the Forest Service, they're always, they're always planning for something. They're either making a long-term plan for like, how are we going to manage this national forest for the next 30 years? Or how are we going to do this very specific project? But whether it's that 30-year land management plan or you know, a three-year travel management plan or even like a trail building project or a, a logging project or something. There's always, it always follows kind of the same process. And that process is laid out through the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA. And that is the federal law that um, requires government agencies to make informed and transparent decisions. And then it kind of has sets out a process through through how they make those informed and transparent decisions. And as part of that, there's a lot of opportunities for public engagement. And so with my job, it's getting involved directly in those processes and also um, helping our members get involved in those processes. And so um, a lot of uh, meeting with the Forest Service, reviewing documents that they put out, um, many of which are 
kind of sciencey documents, like here's the biological assessment for how this project is going to affect X, Y, and Z species or you know, resource values or whatever. And then translating that, because those documents are generally several hundred pages long, translating it um, into something very digestible for our members, like you know, a single email, a blog post that's like, here's the thing, here's what you can do, here's how you can do it. That's one piece of it. And then the other piece is like coming into those projects with a vision for what we would like the Forest Service to do and then working on getting them aligned with our vision. So a lot of advocacy, um, a lot of campaign building. Um, sometimes it's very you know, short-lived and sometimes it's really long-term. Different campaigns take different time. Um, and sometimes those campaigns then go from the administrative you know, Forest Service decision-making process into more of a legislative process that, okay, you have, so the Forest Service is within the executive branch. It's under the Department of Agriculture. They make administrative decisions. They make a lot of decisions about how national forest lands are managed. But for permanent protection, or there, there are other ways in which Congress, you know, the legislative branch also has a say in public land management. And that's a whole different game than the administrative side. The administrative side, generally, you're following NEPA. There's, you know, very set uh, rules of the game. And, um, and you're working with uh, civil servants, you know, career professionals, Versus in Congress, you're working with politicians, and there isn't a, a necessarily a rule book for how they are going to operate. And so it's a different approach, but sometimes you know, you're, you're still trying to get to the same end game of like, I don't want to see this place developed, or I want to see this type of you know, management action taken. So. so do you have to manage multiple projects or management plans at the same time? Or are you focused on one and then you move on to the next? Yeah, at Winter Wildlands, I have a lot of different projects. Um, I would say probably around 30 projects at the moment um, of different levels of intensity and effort and attention necessary. You know, if you work for a nonprofit that is focused on a single landscape, there are some jobs that are very similar to mine, but they're focused on one national forest or one state, or one county, or one species. And then there are other jobs that, you know, it just, there's different scales. And in my particular job, um, I am focused on everywhere that gets snow. Um, and so a lot of our policy work is driven through Winter Wildlands Grassroots Network. Uh, we have a little over 30, I think currently 33 grassroots groups across 16 different states that we work with. They're generally small volunteer-led nonprofits. Some of them do have paid staff. Some of them are actually larger than Winter Wildlands. But, but whatever kind of the scale of the grassroots group, part of their mission aligns with ours and we work together. And you know, I can't keep track of every single thing happening across the entire country related to public land and snow. And so I really rely on those grassroots members and our, our general membership to say, hey, this thing's happening in my backyard and I'm really you know, concerned about it, interested in it, think Winter Wildlands should work on it. And then you know, I, I go take a look at it and, and generally we get involved. Um, so um, for instance, with uh, national forests, uh, there are 84 national forests out of a hundred and some uh, that receive snow, you know, enough snow to support winter recreation. And every single one of those national forests needs to write a winter travel plan where they designate specifically where motor vehicles, over snow vehicles, like snowmobiles, for instance, uh, can go 
um, in the wintertime. And through that designation process, they have to minimize the impacts of snowmobile use on wildlife, on natural resources, and on other users or on other uses. And so any place that that particular process is happening, winter wildlands is involved. And right now, just that particular planning process is happening on like seven different national forests in Montana, Idaho, California, and Colorado. And then there's also forest planning, which is the uh, you know thirty thousand foot foot thirty year you know how we what's our vision for this national forest? That's something we generally work on, and that's happening. I think right now I'm working on three or four different forest plans across the West. And then there's all sorts of smaller projects. This ski resort is thinking about expanding into important bighorn sheep habitat, or this national forest is proposing a logging project in an area that's really important for winter recreation, or this mining company wants to build a 200 mile road across the Arctic, <laughs> like all sorts of different projects. So definitely a, a lot to keep track of. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. And so in that situation where you talked about um, a concerned resident kind of bringing up, Hey, they're proposing doing X, Y, or Z in the national forest in my area, um, I have concerns. What do you have to do um, from that point to then present a counter argument, things to consider, or possible solutions to the Forest Service? Yeah. So if somebody reaches out to Winter Wildlands and you know says, this thing's happening and I'm worried about it, the first thing I'm going to do is learn more about it. You know, look and see you know, what documents are available, what is you know, what stage in the process is it? Does it is it something that's just kind of been mentioned or is it something where the decision is imminent or is it somewhere in between? Uh, where is it happening? What other nonprofits are potentially involved in this? So I should make it very clear that all of this work does not happen just within winter wildlands and I certainly am not responsible for like making everything that we do um, happen. We work with partners left and right. So we work with our grassroots groups. We also work with tons of other nonprofits um, in the conservation sphere, some of which are wildlife focused, some of which are wilderness focused, rivers focused. We work with local governments. We, you know, we work very, very collaboratively. And so that's one of the first things that I'll do is say, like, who else is in this space who's working on this? And if I feel like, hey, all these other groups are working on this, we actually don't need to get engaged because it's covered. Um, I will direct you know, the, the person be like, hey, you should talk to this organization because they are already working on it and they are representing your concerns and they can help you out. Um, or if I'm like, oh, wow, nobody's paying attention to this, I guess, you know, and then it's like, okay, nobody's paying attention to it. Is it something that fits within the Winter Wildlands wheelhouse? And if it is, then it's like, do I have the bandwidth to get involved? I try to say yes. Um, and sometimes that just means providing kind of support to that individual or that group that reached out to us to be like, okay, here's what you can do. Here's how this is, this process works. Here's where they're at. This is what this means. This is what I would do. And sometimes it's like jumping all in, rolling up the sleeves and, uh, and taking it on. So it, it, it's really variable, but I definitely uh, have been trying to get better about saying no, or even at least maybe <laughs> instead of saying yes to every single thing that comes across my desk. Oh, and that's the hardest thing, I think. Um, so let me ask, and I'm going to flip these questions compared to what I normally ask. Um, 
So is that one of the least appealing parts of your job or what crosses your mind when you think about the not so great pieces? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that. It could be a little overwhelming sometimes when you're like, oh my gosh, there are so many things to be done. You know, the work is endless. And I think with nonprofits, a lot of people get sucked into like, I need to be working all the time, 24 seven, like the work is never done. And it's like, yeah, the work is never done. That's why you shouldn't work all the time. (laughs) Um, And so that it can be a challenge for sure. Like kind of the sheer overwhelming scale of potential things you could be working on. And so it's really important to like step back and like assess and triage and think about that. But I wouldn't necessarily say it's one of the least appealing things. I think on the flip side of that, it's like, wow, there's so many different interesting things I could be working on. Kind of getting back to my early career of like, what what am I going to do for the next six months? You know, the world is my oyster. <laughs> I think when people find out about Winter Wildlands Alliance and they're like, oh, wow, you work for this like backcountry skiing organization. You must get to be outside all the time skiing and traveling to all these cool places and like doing all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, no. I spend most of my time sitting at my desk, talking to people about skiing, looking at maps of places where people ski, writing about how important this place is for skiing. But I don't get outside, you know, I started my career, I started kind of in this career direction because I wanted to be outside as much as possible. And, you know, probably as with any job, the longer you do it, the higher, you know, the more kind of you grow in the field and, and the more skilled you become and the like more advanced you become in your career, the less you get to do the fun stuff. Um, and the more you're responsible for like what I think of as like the not as fun stuff, which is sitting at my desk, you know, typing and reading. Hmm. Yeah. Well, in the extended interview, we'll dive into that a little bit more. So let's keep going on the flip side. So what do you love the most about your role and your job? Well, one, I think the variety of things that I work on keeps it super interesting. So I've been working at Winter Wildlands for almost 10 years. And that is a really long, I'm realizing that that's kind of a long time. Like a lot of my friends and colleagues have changed jobs multiple times in the time that I've been here. And I just can't think of another place that I would rather work or another, you know, type of job I'd rather have because it is always different. Like no, no two days are the same. Um, if I get bored with one project, I can kind of set it aside and work on something totally different. Um, and so that part's really interesting. Um, it keeps it really fresh. Um, also, I work with amazing people. Um, my coworkers within the organization and the board are all really great, fun, smart, just really enjoyable people to work with. But also the larger community of people that we work with is just really really interesting and, and enjoyable to, to get to know and to work with you know, people who are passionate about many of the same things I am, but being different perspectives to things, people who've done some just really cool things. Like, you know, I, I like adventures and a lot of the people I work with, I'm like, wow, that's like, I would love to do what you're doing right now. <laughs> so like, even if it's like, oh man, like I have to sit at my desk and like, you know, do computer stuff to that's informed by this really cool adventure you had. I want to go have a cool adventure, but like, it's, it's just really inspiring. Right. And then also when I travel, 
which I do a fair amount, um, it's always to places people go on vacation to like Jackson Hole and Tahoe and you know Steamboat and like these places that people go as like a once in a lifetime vacation. Um, and so it's I I can never like lose sight of that uh, privilege of being able to like go to these places for work and then be really involved not just as like a tourist who's like skimming along on the surface, but really getting into like the nuts and bolts of what makes that place so special, like the public lands around those communities and how to preserve that um, and getting to know the people in those communities. Um, my work also takes me to DC, you know, at least once a year. And I really like Washington DC. I, I think, you know, I still am a, a political nerd at heart. So being able to, you know, get involved in, in government and, you know, have, relationships, professional relationships with the people kind of at the center of how our government is functioning, like, you know, the staffers and sometimes even elected officials like that. It's super cool. Well, hearing about all those work trips, you sure got a lot more than just uh, health insurance out of the deal. That's for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I still have health insurance. So that's pretty great. <laughs> Yeah. So now I want to take a moment and kind of reflect back on some of your experiences as a student or early career professional. So is there a particular class or course that you think was most influential or valuable to you in your current role? So as a conservation biology major, um, I went to Middlebury College. And so you're, it's like I was an environmental studies, biology, double major with a conservation focus. And so it kind of boils down to conservation biology. And so I like half of my classes were like more uh, like literature and humanities focused and kind of the, the philosophy of the environmental movement, which was interesting at the time. And I have now come to appreciate like, oh, it's cool that like I was exposed to all those things when I didn't really know what I was doing with my life. But like, and it's actually all very you know, foundational to the work I do now. And then the biology side of it being more of like in the ecology field, um, just like an understanding of how the world works, like quite literally, uh, was important. As a, as I was going into my senior year of college, I had the opportunity to work with a professor doing uh, research with her for the summer up in Alaska and doing field work. And, and so the, the classes that kind of led into that, I think we're all just kind of building that, that well-rounded field ecologist skill set was really valuable um, and made me just interested in this work um, or just interested in ecology. And then like that translated into eventually like, well, how do we make sure ecosystems continue to function um, and what does a healthy functioning ecosystem mean? And how do you, you know, measure that? And like, that's really at the heart of a lot of conservation work. And then when I was in graduate school, um, I, I went to grad school for wildlife biology. Very early on in grad school, I realized I didn't want to be a wildlife biologist, that my, my skill set was much more suited towards policy work than being like a, a wildlife biologist. Um, and so I took environmental law um, while just because uh, I went to University of Montana, they have a law school, they have, there's, you know, environmental law is one of the classes that lawyers take. Um, and so I, I took it kind of, not because it was related to my actual degree at all, but because I was interested in it. And I because I knew that after school, I wanted to be going back into policy and environmental law would be an important you know, foundation for that. And that was by far the most useful school uh, class that I took while I was in graduate school. Um, it's the one that um, 
informs my day-to-day work um, in a way that like, you know, statistics or population genetics and, and those sorts of classes don't really relate to what I do now. Yeah. Well, it goes to show you early on when you're still figuring out what you want your career to look like, having that breadth of exposure to different classes that you might not see how it's going to translate yet, but then in retrospect, you're seeing that. And then once you start gaining more and more clarity, I mean, even if it's outside your quote unquote requirements to graduate, taking courses to set yourself up for success for what you know you want to pursue um, that's probably even more important and such a valuable use of your time and money. Yeah. I mean, I my I don't know how much my younger siblings or nieces and nephews take my advice. Probably not at all. I have a couple nieces in college right now and thinking about what they want to do. My advice to them has been like, don't get so worked up about it. Like I, I remember being so stressed out about which college to get it, you know, that I was going to get into and thinking it was going to like, you know, shape my entire life. And of course it, you know, made a difference, you know, influenced aspects of my life. But at the end of the day, I think being really open to different possibilities, being willing to try new things early on, I was like, I'm going to be a doctor because I care about science. That's what you do. But it's, there's this whole world of things you can do. So don't get yourself locked into something that, you know, 12 year old or 18 year old you thought was important. If you come across other things that interest you, like take time and space to pursue those interests. It doesn't mean you have to give up on your, you know, if you've had a lifelong dream of doing something, you don't have to give up on that, but don't limit your, you know, opportunity to experience other possibilities because of something that you, you know, decided on a really long time ago. And I mean, look at what you did. You literally designed your dream job and then were preparing to find funding for it and then stumbled across this opportunity that was your dream job. And so that that clarity that you build over time can help you think outside the box. You thought well outside the box. Instead of finding a prepackaged job, you were prepared to design your own that was a perfect fit for your values, interests, and skills. Um, so what a cool thing to think about in terms of even just broadening your scope of how do you get a job beyond their traditional means? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been just so lucky and like <laughs> somewhat aimless, I think. Well, not totally aimless, but because at the end of the day, I actually do the thing that I more or less went to school for. But when I was preparing to graduate from college, I... I didn't even know that what I do today was an option. And even had I known that it was an option, I don't know that I would have decided that that's what I wanted to do. I had to kind of evolve to that point. Um, and it was a lot of just like stumbling into opportunities. So I, I don't know if I'm ever like the best person for giving advice on, on careers because I'm like, well, it's kind of by happenstance. But at the same time, like there are some like threads through like how I got from point A to point B. Well, it certainly takes some pressure off having to know what you want to do for the rest of your life when you're 18, 22 years old. Um, so that's reassuring. Oh, I, I will say that when I was 22 and had just graduated from college uh, and was living in my Subaru and working for the Forest Service, my parents were not super impressed. <laughs> they were like, wait a minute, you went to like a pretty fancy school on the other side of the country, we thought you were going to be a doctor 
and maybe support us in our old age. And instead you're living out of your car in like the mountains an hour from where we live. Like what, what was the point of all of that work that you just put into your education? Um, they don't feel that way anymore. Uh, but I think they definitely had some questions about where I was going with my, with my life for a while. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, we're going to table that to talk about in the extended interview, because I think there's some gold there and how to kind of navigate your relationship with your parents at the same time as you're thinking about your career future. So we'll come back to that. Um, but let me ask you, now beyond just classes and courses, which help with knowledge, what about a technical skill that you've built or had prior to this role? Which one has served you the most? I think a skill that is pretty important in, in my work is I'm a very fast reader. So it's like, that's not like anything fancy by any means, but when you, ha when you have to read several hundred pages of technical writing and comprehend it, being able to do that efficiently is really important. And so that's like one of my skills that didn't really come from school. I mean, it probably came from being a passionate reader. Like I love, I love reading books, <laughs> but that is an under understated skill in the work that I do is that like reading and reading comprehension uh, is, is important. Now, is that a skill you've explicitly outlined in your resume or just something that you innately know you have? It's more something I innately know I have. Like, you know, it's been a, a long time since I've updated my resume or even looked at it, but I'm pretty sure I don't have anything about being a fast reader. I think I probably have some stuff on there about like, you know, very well organized, able to quickly understand concepts and translate them into plain language. You know, that I probably have stuff like that on my resume, but being a fast reader, maybe I should add that to my resume because it's definitely uh, pretty clutch to my day-to-day -day work. And also knowing, knowing when to skim and when to read. Absolutely. Agree with that. The more you have to read, the more you have to be uh, selective on what you read deep and what you skim. So... I know you mentioned that your career journey has sort of been a happenstance, like stumbling upon the next opportunity. Um, but I'm curious what you would say in terms of having some support in the form of something like a science career coach at any point in your journey, how that might have changed things for you, either the experience or how you felt about it. I mean, I think it would have been really helpful had there been somebody who could kind of step back and be like, I see what you're doing here. Maybe you should think about this, like to give a little bit of direction. I've certainly had really important mentors, like my undergraduate advisor and another one of my professors in undergrad um, were super supportive mentors. They, especially as I was, you know, really still kind of trending towards like, oh, I'm going to go to graduate school for wildlife biology. And I think I want to be a scientist. They were so supportive in helping me figure out how to, get to that stage and how to apply and just like cheerleaders and they were amazing. And then in my, you know, as I transitioned into policy, I've had, I have, well, still have, they're, they're still mentors, but colleagues who I really look to for guidance on like, how do you do this work? And like, how do I navigate this particular dilemma or, you know, how do you approach this strategically? So I've had some really important mentors, but I think it would have been valuable to, you know, Eight, for 18-year-old me or 21-year-old or me or 
30-year-old me when I was finishing grad school to have somebody who had a bit of an outside perspective and was looking more broadly than just like whatever the thing I was doing at the moment was and, and helping me piece together, like, here's all these different things that you do. Here's where that could potentially lead you. Like here, so that I was, would have been, you know, a little less just happenstance um, in getting where I was going. Well, you're presenting such a good point in the idea of it's not really just one person that you need as a support system. It's really a team of people that may exist throughout your journey or come and go. And so you're describing mentors as people that provide expertise to help you do that job or transition into a new role. And then a coach kind of offering that perspective that may connect the dots or introduce something that you may not have even considered or saw yourself. Yeah. All right. So as we wrap up, I'll give you the last words to our audience. So if you had to give kind of the last pieces of wisdom um, and, and advice to our listeners, which again are students and early career professionals, what would you tell them if they were considering a job in conservation policy work? First, like it's a really big field, right? It could be anything from wildlife to wild places to food security to pollution, international, you know, local. There's, it's, it's, that's a huge bucket. And so really thinking about what you're passionate about um, and letting those passions help you narrow down even what kind of conservation policy you would want to work on. Um, and then even still not, not tying yourself to like a particular like I, I can only work for this organization or I have to study wolves or child hunger is the only thing that I could possibly work on. Like being open to different opportunities and, and what in applying to lots of different jobs, because even if you don't stay in a particular job for for the rest of your life, you're going to build skills within that that will then help you get to where it is you want to be or maybe help you identify where it is you actually want to be. Because a lot of these jobs, no matter, again, what the topic is, the basic skill set, the basic recipe for how you do the work is pretty similar. And so dipping your toes in, even if it's not your dream job, is, is a place to start. But also, like, it helps to be passionate about, or at least interested in the topic. I would say the same, you know, for any career field, just not being completely just set on one perfect thing but being open to trying different, different experiences that could lead you there. Oh, Hillary, great words of advice, especially since we can't predict our futures um, and what our personal lives, what will come, or even in our world and in our country and beyond. So thank you so much. What an episode. If you want to hear more from Hillary Eisen, you can. Head over to patreon.com slash diverse roots to become a patron of this podcast. Not only will you be supporting the continuation of this podcast, but you will gain access to my extended interview with Hillary, where we go deeper into her day-to-day life and things she wished she knew earlier in her career. In the meantime, don't forget to share this episode with those in your network that would benefit from hearing Hillary's story. You never know who or how it might inspire others. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Diverse Roots. Never forget your career journey is as unique as you are. 
Stay true to your values and journey on. And know that you don't have to journey alone. If you're overwhelmed by career options or feel like your applications are getting overlooked, Success in Science Career Coaching is here to help. Schedule your free inquiry session today at successinsciencecc.com. Until next time, bye-bye.